With a pending pay raise, most federal employees expect to see bigger paychecks starting in January, but that's not the case for hundreds of employees at the National Science Foundation. Last week, NSF announced upcoming salary cuts for some staff members. That's after senior officials learned the agency has been in violation of legal pay caps for the past six years. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman broke the story last week, and she's here with us now to talk more about it. Hey, Drew. Hi, Jared. So this is a relatively complicated story, but let's let's give our first crack here at trying to explain what happened here. You know, what are the basics here? How did this years-long mistake come to pass? So as you said, this is something that started at the beginning of 2023. There was a bit of contention for federal employees at National Science Foundation who are on a, the administratively determined pay scale. This only is for certain scientists, engineers, and program directors at NSF, not all of their staff members. Um, but this did affect about 300 uh, employees at NSF. So unlike employees who are on the general schedule, NSF has the authority to set pay raises for those on the AD pay scale, only up to a certain point, of course. And NSF had planned to implement just a 1% raise for uh, level four and five on the AD scale for 2023. Of course, this plan back in January gained major pushback from the agency's union, and ultimately NSF implemented the full 4.6% pay raise. That decision ultimately got the attention of the Office of Personnel Management, who then reviewed the pay rates and found that they were indeed above the legal pay limits uh, that are set for federal employees. So how big a cut are we actually talking about here? Do we know yet? It's still up in the air. If you look at what the uh, pay rates are right now, those on level four and five of the AD pay scale at NSF currently make between about $160,000 and $206,000 in salary. If the pay cut was implemented currently with those current pay rates, the affected employees would see a cut of about $10,000 per year. But because this change is not going to take effect until 2024, and we don't yet know for sure what the pay raise would be, that is still up in the air, as I said. But uh, if the if President Joe Biden's planned pay raise of 5.2% for federal employees takes effect, it would actually be a slightly softer blow for these couple hundred NSF employees. They would see cuts of about $2,500 to their salary uh, starting in January next year. All right. So to try to recap some of that, basically what you have is there's a they, there's a pay cap for essentially all employees, including administratively determined in law that's set every year. For one reason or another, there was a legal opinion from NSF that thought they could exceed that, but it turns out that's not the answer. Is that about right? And what what, what are the federal regulations actually say about that cap? Right. So this is something that exists not just for NSF, but more broadly. And generally what happens is they're with among the different pay systems that federal employees can get paid through. One of them, the executive schedule pay system, sets a pay cap for several other pay systems. So if you look at the level three of the executive schedule, those employees can make a maximum of for 2023 of $195,000 annually. Now, if you compare that against the pay system for the administratively determined pay scale, the $206,000 maximum that those employees are making are, of course, above the $195,000 that they are legally allowed to make at maximum. So this is something where 
you know, after the 4.6% pay raise for 2023 took effect, more employees at NSF, of course, uh, went slightly above that pay cap. But NSF employees, at least um, some of them have been been or have been paid above this cap since 2017. So for the last six years, this has been going on. And what is agency leadership saying about, you know, how this happened and how it's going to be implemented? So they said they're basically doing all in their power, but they kind of are are saying it's essentially out of their hands. It is a legal issue. So, of course, they do have to uh, cut down the pay for these employees. What they have said in the meantime is that, um, number one, the the affected employees will not have to pay back any overpayments that they uh, were given over the last six years. There's also no effect for employees in levels one through three on that pay scale. And of course, not every uh, not every employee in AD4 or AD5 will be impacted by this. There are some who maybe their pay is a little bit lower. As I said, the lower end is 160000 So if a 5.2% pay raise, for example, doesn't bring them up above that uh, 195000 cap, then they won't have to take the pay cut. Uh, another thing that NSF leadership mentioned here was that this will not affect employees high three. This is a formula that the government has that essentially sets retirement annuities for federal employees by taking their three highest consecutive years of salary. Normally, that will be at the end of a federal employee's career. But in some cases, you know, you can have a mid-career peak in salary and then that falls back down. So in these cases, if these employees get to their end of the end of their careers and uh, their pay is lower than what it was for the past couple of years, they'll they'll still have their high three set as this mid-career uh, point. And as I understand it, these are all union employees. What what sort of pushback are we hearing from organized labor here? And is there anything that they might be able to do? This is something that has been on uh, on the mind of union leaders. The American Federation of Government Employees is the union that represents these NSF employees. And they said that in this case, the timing of the announcement makes the news particularly difficult. Uh, for example, it's coming just after the uh, Office of Personnel Management announced an insurance premium hike. And so that compared or combined with a pay cut may be particularly difficult for these employees. Uh, the union said that they had asked leadership multiple times about their plans to implement the 5.2% pay raise and if that would apply to employees on the AD scale. They said they never received any notice from management until just before the agency made the the uh, staff-wide announcement. They're also worried about some of the long-term impacts here as well. So, um, you know, if pay is cut, there's already kind of retention issues with scientists and engineers at NSF, and this might make it more difficult to compete with the private sector for talent. And um, so this is something that is certainly on the, on the mind of the union leaders uh, for, for NSF. Yeah, I was going to say, presumably the whole reason this separate pay scale that, that gives NSF some more flexibility, the, the whole reason that exists in the first place is so that they can attract some of these folks who are going to be in higher demand and able to command higher salaries on the outside. Did, do we know what the impact of this is going to be on that ability to attract employees or too early? Probably too early, huh? It's hard to say exactly, but certainly a pay cut for anyone is is not welcome news. So I think there there will probably uh, be at least some pushback from the union or maybe some of the employees who will be impacted here as well. All right. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks very much. 
Thank you. And you can find Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. And still to come on Federal News Network, more on this week's last-minute congressional action that avoided a shutdown and what to expect in the appropriations process in the weeks to come. That's next on The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people and in order to do that we really value our people we want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them so well-being is important psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard so I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. 
And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, 
I realized that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules, can we make it a menu, can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role. So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, 
that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.